Okay, can you hear it all right? All right. I want to start off by thanking uh, many people that have supported me through this preparation process. As your fellow Christian, I'm a layman, not an ordained pastor nor a trained pastor. But I am the servant of the living God like everyone is here. And like Martin Luther said, in the, he believed in the priesthood of all believers. So with that, we'll be sharing the gospel today and learn and focus on some of the truths of Jesus Christ, his Lord. The theme of my sermon today is the Christian life. What does it mean to live the Christian life every day? It is really a stepping back and looking at a broad picture of, of three key issues. And each one of these, one can spend an entire class or university course on, and yet the application is very simple to your daily life. And we'll be going through that here today. Let's start with a few reminders. First of all, by faith you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. He revealed to you that you are in need of a Savior. You're, you're a sinner. You're selfish and shallow and self-centered, I like to say. And by faith you accepted him as your personal Savior and Lord, who died for your sins, was rose, and is with God in heaven. That was an act of faith. So too is a Christian life. It is an act of faith each and every day. You are already saved. It is a free gift of God. You can do nothing to credit yourself to God. But God, from that, calls you to live a Christian life and to follow his law, his tenets. We do that by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2.9. We can merely respond to him and serve him accordingly by faith. Martin Luther described this issue in a great fable called Aesop's Fables. It was, we think they were written around the second or third century BC. They're whimsical stories about animals that took on human-like character so many of them could speak, and, and one of Martin Luther's favorite one on this issue of the life of faith is a, the story of a dog who's running along the shoreline of a river, and he has a, a piece of meat in his mouth as he's, as he's running along, and he looks in the water, and he sees a reflection of himself, and, but he doesn't know it's a reflection of himself. He thinks it's another dog, and that dog has a piece of meat in his mouth. And so the dog, wanting both, lets go of the meat in his mouth and tries to snap at the other dog's meat to get that one. And in the process, he loses both. It's a great analogy. Second reminder, we are called to earnestly and enthusiastically serve him. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John, through an angel of God, wrote a letter to the seven churches in Sardis and Laodicea, he wrote a very specific point to this. To Sardis, he said, wake up, church. Now, he's speak now, he is speaking to people that are already Christian, okay? And the angel of the Lord instructed from God to told, told this church to wake up. Similarly, in the in 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 a instruction to the church of Laodicea, he said, "You are neither cold nor hot, but you are lukewarm, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth." We are called to live the enthusiastic life, serving God with that enthusiasm, 
And remember at the same time when he said this, he goes, God said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. All right. So with that, we are to focus on Jesus and serving him and do so enthusiastically. So I'm going to challenge you with a couple of thoughts this morning. One is, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. He also said, like was read here, Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you, you, you can do nothing. What does that mean to you each and every day? We need to take God's words seriously. How do we apply this to our daily lives? The answer is in Scripture, of course, and I'm going to summarize those here this morning. Now, I have compressed this into three parts. I call it the triad of the Christian life. It's obviously my own term, but they're based upon principles in the Bible, and it organizes it in my mind very easily, and maybe it will help you as well. So here they are. Three parts. Love the Lord your God. Second part, trust in the Lord your God. Third part, live for the Lord your God. Now, I have a handout that is summarized here, what I'm talking about. If you want, you can follow it along. It's in the bulletin. Let's go through the first one, love the Lord your God. When the teacher of the law approached Jesus, he asked him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay? What does that mean? I'm going to come back to the second greatest commandment. Obviously that was important because Jesus brought it up. We're going to put that in the imaginary whiteboard over here and come back to it. All right. The commandment, love your God. This is an emotional, a deeply spiritual, deeply personal, and intellectual act. It is something we do daily, we do continually, we do actively. And yes, it is a process done by faith. Think about it. What does that mean to you? We have a God that is very personal, very present tense, very real, one who is intimately act in each of our lives, intimately involved in each of our lives. Martin Luther wrote of this personal relationship that you have with Jesus. It is incomparable benefit of faith is that it unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. By this mystery, Christ and the soul become one. Your soul is one with Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thought. The creator of the entire universe is one with your soul. Now let's dig a little deeper here. What is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. Other gods can be many things. It can be money, material possessions, power, pleasure, leisure, whatever it is that is important to you, that is your God. What do you pursue? What do you cherish in your everyday life? Whatever it is, it is your God. This requires a very deep and prayerful time with God to work through this. And every Christian has to work through this. 
The corollary then to this first one of loving God is have no other gods in your life. Have no other gods in your life. We need to put God, our creator, first in everything. What are the common barriers? Well, let's talk about one at least. The one is an impure heart. In the Beatitude, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a deep, abiding truth that is. What is a, what is a pure heart with God? Well, for one thing, it means consistency in your life. What you live in your religious life, your family life, your work life, your friends life, your party life, whatever your life, whatever lives you have, elements of your life you have, they need to be consistent across all of them. And they need to be consistently in love and service to him. Secondly, do not lie to yourself and do not lie to God. I'm amazed how I witness this all the time. I've done it myself. Lie to yourself and you lie to God. I don't really have a problem with that in my life. Really? Don't you? Thirdly is have no agenda on what's right and what's wrong. To be frank, God does not care what you think what is right and what is wrong. He tells you what is right and what is wrong. And I'm amazed in the pagan world I live in how many people say, well, I don't think that's wrong. God doesn't care about what you think. God tells you what's right and what's wrong. Okay? We have to serve God with a pure heart. Approach the scriptures with an open mind, not your own agenda. If you do that, you are serving God with a pure heart. So why do we love God? Well, first of all, God saved your soul. That's a good reason enough. If we stop there, that's far. But there's more to it. God's done more than that. Second, he has given you a life of peace and joy, if you've accepted that. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid, John 14, 27. And he, and he also said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete, John 15, 11. What a beautiful gift. Do you want to live a happy life? God's given it to you if you accept it by faith. Third, God is your creator. He made you. He knows what you need. All right? If you buy, when you buy an automobile and you pull out the owner's manual, it tells you what you have to do to maintain that car. You have to change the oil every thousand, several thousand miles. You've got to change the air filter, change the fuel filter, etc. What happens if you don't do what the manufacturer of that car says you have to do? Your car will break down. So, too, if we don't do what God tells us to do, who created you, you will break down. You need God in your life. And people that constantly reject God, they seek spirituality in other areas. Why? Because it's endemic and inherent in the human spirit to have something to worship. Fourth, take to heart, take to heart how God describes his relationship to you. He does so in countless ways in Scripture. I'm going to name just two. First, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and, knows the f and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep, my sheep listen to my voice. 
I know them, and, I, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will smash them out of my hand. John 10, 14 through 28. And I'm obviously paraphrasing. What a beautiful statement. He was talking to farmers. The Israelite, the Jewish people in Christ's time were primarily agricultural farmers. They could relate to the statement very, very well. And even though I'm not a farmer, I've been around sheep enough to understand what he's saying here. Second one that I really like, this is my favorite. Proverbs 18.24, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That is a very true statement. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So how can we not love him? Those are just a few of the reasons. This is true grace, a given gift for you and to me. What a wonderful gift. So that's the first element. Love the Lord your God. Second one, trust in God. Pastor Luke, just a few days ago on Instagram, gave this post. I think it's amazing because we didn't confer on what this topic I was going to bring today. I'm going to read his quote. God's grace and comfort will carry us through every situation. Jesus doesn't want us to simply grit our teeth and bear hardship. He desires that we trust him and bring glory to his name through our dependence on him. Praise be to God. Unquote. Pastor Luke. So I'm going to share a story on trusting in God. There's lots of great stories in the Bible on this. But to me, this is one of the most amazing ones. It's about the story of good King Hezekiah. He was king of, he was the 13th king of of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Israelites. And he, was a, he took the throne at the age of 25. Early in Hezekiah's reign, he embarked on a campaign to eliminate the worship of false gods from his nation. He removed the shrines that had been set up by the pagan gods, and he smashed the sacred stones and altars. This was in the Jewish nation that these things had encroached into the, into the people. They had adopted the pagan practices of those around them. It included... Uh, human sacrifice, and included prostitution in the temples, amongst many other abominable things that Jesus described. These had encroached into Hezekiah's nation. The Bible describes his reign, could King Hezekiah's reign, in 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah trusted the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him amongst the king, in the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord he had given Moses, and the Lord was with him and was successful in whatever he undertook. Okay, so this is spoken of in the book of 2 Kings and the book of Isaiah. So, what happened? Well, the northern kingdom of Israel, in the second or third year of King Hezekiah, completely collapsed. They had rebelled against God for generations. The story of Elijah and Elisha focus on the northern kingdom, and we all know what happened there. They continued to reject God. Finally, under the king Hosea, um, who also did not worship the true God, as well as the people in the northern kingdom, they were completely overrun by the Assyrians, and they were taken into slavery and uh, dispersed amongst the, other, the rest of the empire. This is what we refer to as the lost tribes of Israel. They never were again. Never again did they become another nation. This occurred in the second year of good King Hezekiah. All right? 
Then the northern king, excuse me, Assyria started knocking on the door of King, of king Hezekiah, the southern nation of the Israelites. They demanded, the Assyrians demanded of King Hezekiah gold and silver. King Hezekiah panicked. He went to the temple, he stripped the temple of all the gold and the silver, and he gave it to the Assyrian nation. All right? The Syrians continued to torment him. They would, they would attack the forts in the northern part of the nation of Judah and seize them and continue to demand a tribute. Secretly, Hezekiah sent a delegation to Egypt to form an alliance to defend himself against the Assyrian army. Now, at this time, Assyria was the strongest nation in the world. They were the first army to take on iron. They had iron swords and iron spears. And they were a well-trained, standing army. Hands down, the most powerful army in the world. They gloried, the Assyrian nation gloried in destruction and in violence. And you look at the hieroglyphs of the Assyrians today, that is very clear. They believed in um, human sacrifice and many other abominable things. The Assyrians were bad boys, largest standing army in the world. And they were knocking on the door of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah panicked. He went to the Egypt, like I said, and he asked for an alliance. The Assyrians heard about it, found out about it. They had delegates there too. So they were going to take over good King Hezekiah's kingdom. They marched on Jerusalem, gave him ultimatums. Great story, by the way, if you read, read in, the book of, in the book of 2 Kings and in Isaiah. They gave Hezekiah the ultimatum to surrender in the letter. Hezekiah went to the temple, put the letter on the ground, on the floor in front of God, and wept. At the same time, he sent a message to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, God immediately through Isaiah responded. Here was, in the gist of it, this was the message. No arrow will be shot in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will not even be attacked the Assyrian army will go home from whence they came. Good King Hezekiah went to God and pled for help. God took mercy upon him. That night, an angel of the Lord slew 185,000 men in the Assyrian army. Now, that's a lot of men in any war, even World War II, that was, that's almost half the number of soldiers, all of American soldiers that died in World War II. And this occurred in one night. When they woke up the next morning, the, those that were still alive, they packed up their things and the Assyrian army went home, never to return to Israel, just as God had promised. So let's unpackage this thing about trusting in God. Couple facts. One is in Isaiah 29:13, the Lord says, "These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me on, based merely on human rules that have that I have not taught." Okay. Woe to the Isaiah 31 through 3. Woe to you, obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine. Forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, and heaping sin upon sin. 
who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who go for the help of, for, for Pharaoh's protection. But notice how quickly God was gracious to forgive. When Hezekiah went to the Lord and pled for help, in his moment of crisis, God saved him. But he had to turn and put his trust in God. Okay, it's a beautiful story. And the prayer that Hezekiah gave God is a beautiful prayer, and I'd encourage anyone to read it in 2 Kings. The key lesson here is we are to trust in God, not on ourselves. We are to consult God about our daily lives. He, he has called us to do that. Go to him in prayer and ask for help. I love this statement here in Isaiah 30, 15. And it applies to you and me. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. In repentance and rest is your salvation, and in quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Finally, in Proverbs 3 through 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Make trust in God, the second thing. All right, the third one, live for God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were farmers. David was a shepherd. Joseph served under Pharaoh, a pagan god. Daniel served under four pagan kings. Not a pagan god, a pagan king. Daniel served under four pagan kings. Two, pagan, two were Babylon and two were Persian. Jesus saved the life also of a Roman centurion. What is my point? There are many examples of people that serve God in many different ways. Okay, and they were blessed by God. You too, whatever you do for a living, whatever you do in your daily life, you are serving God. Be it a teacher, a doctor, a minister, a lawyer, electrician, a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, whatever you do, you are serving God. And God has called you to serve him in that position. Do so with all your heart. In Colossians 3, 23 and 24, he was actually, Paul was talking to slaves or servants. He said this, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as one working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. It applies to you too. It is the Lord Christ you are serving in whatever you do. All right. Okay, so another corollary of the third triad is the, of the third triad I'm saying is the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we're coming back to that. I think it's interesting that the teacher of the law didn't ask Jesus what are the two greatest commandments. No, he said, What's the greatest commandment? He didn't ask what the second one was, but Jesus brought that in. Why? Because it was important. To love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? One of the great ministers I like to listen to said this, love is to take an interest in the needs of others, people, and to take action on it. Take an interest in the needs of other people and to take action on it. You know, it's quite, quite amazing. You think about when Jesus was with his disciples just before his time of crucifixion at the Last Supper. 
If you were going to spend the last few hours with those who you cared about, would you not drive home really hard the things that were really important? That's what Jesus did. One of the things he did was he washed his disciples' feet. And he said, as I've done this for you, so do it for one another. We are called to serve one another. I'm going to be real brief here because I'm running out of time. He says, Jesus, Jesus spoke of the end of time, his second coming and final judgment. And when they ask about it, he used the analogy of separating the sheep from the goats. On the right side, he said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came and visited me. When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king replied, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. He uses, Christ said that is what he's going to use as a metric in the judgment day. Wow. That's amazing. Great story. I heard uh, the mayor of uh, Everett share in one of the school districts, there was, um, there's a, the kid, 10% of the kids are homeless in that school district in Everett, meaning they don't have a home to go to. They either stay in a car or sleep on someone else's couch or stay in a tent. One of the girls in the school had no money for clothes. And her daughter, the mayor's daughter, went to, was going to school there. And all the girls banded together and they took their allowance money and they bought clothes for one of their classmates. Oh, what a cool thing. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Okay. The triad of the Christian life. Three things. Love the Lord your God. Trust in the Lord your God. Live for the Lord your God. Um, if this is of value to you, the handout is here. Take it home with you. Put it on your desk. Put it in your shop. If it helps. With that, let's close with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your love towards us, and may we serve you with all our hearts each and every day, and may, you, may we glorify you in our daily lives. Thank you for your love towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.